look at the meetings you have, right? Really look and ask yourself, is this really necessary? And if the answer is to no, figure out how to get less meetings, but run better meetings. And that really would be what I'd be worried about in a company is can we get the meetings that need to run, to run better and ultimately impact the culture. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast, brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hello everyone, Jack here. In this episode, we'll explore the nuances of virtual leadership and how it's shaping the future of decision-making and team dynamics in the high-stakes world of private equity. We'll dive into the art of cultivating collaborative skills essential for driving organizational change. This discussion is especially favorable for PE executives, team leaders, and change agents who are navigating the complexities of virtual meetings and seeking to enhance their leadership impact in this digital era. Joining us today is Evan Unger from Schwartz & Associates. Evan brings over 30 years of experience in leadership, training, and organizational change. Evan's expertise lies in virtual leadership and high-stakes facilitation. His work in the Collaborative Leadership Virtual Immersion Program has redefined team dynamics and decision-making in virtual settings. Joining us from Denver, Colorado, Evan, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you, Jack, for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, looking forward to this chat. Uh, Evan, before we dive into the heart of today's conversation, I'd love to hear more about your journey and experiences. So if you could please uh, further introduce yourself to our listeners and, and perhaps sharing some highlights and insights from your career in leadership development and organizational change specifically. Sure. Uh, a mentor of mine uh, uh, from the University of Michigan, a professor, used to do an exercise called Leadership Journey. And when I think about my journey, it starts in many ways as a little kid watching my father who worked for IBM come home from work drained every day. And it left an impression on me. Uh, and so strangely, when I got out of business school, I did exactly the same thing my father did, which is join a large global multinational company, Merck, big pharmaceutical company. And there I was put in a series of roles and they liked what I was doing. And they literally invented a job for me called Director of Change Leadership and Development, which I would say is a fancy title for. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm three <laughs> years out of business school. Um, new CEO comes on board from out of pharma, outside of pharma, and he does an assessment of the organization and finds the organization is rather siloed. And as a director of change, part of what I was supposed to do is figure out how to get this organization more collaborative. Now, three years out of business school, giant multinational company, I did what any young enterprising person did, and I hired an outside consultant. And that's who I work for now. We're a tiny Denver-based consulting firm. Who, what we've done for really 30 years is change in culture projects with small to medium-sized organizations. As part of those interventions, obviously part of what we always would have to do was 
facilitate workshop type multi-day meetings, strategy planning meetings, process redesign meetings, team building, visioning, those types of things. And our belief always when we did those interventions is we wanted to transfer skills in the organization. So we always were teaching people, clients themselves, how to do this type of facilitation. Now, if I back up to when the the CEO comes on board, uh, what we did is design a process at that time to teach very senior people and middle managers how to facilitate collaboration. Now, I don't know how far back you go, Jack, but this is 1993. I don't have email till 1994. So that meant the the most important function in a large company, or maybe not the most important, was the mailroom. That's how things got around the world. So we're teaching people how to do this sitting in a room together. And it's an intensive, right? 12 people, two instructors. There's no WebEx back then, no Microsoft Teams. None of this stuff existed. Now, decades go by, and we're teaching people how to do this face-to-face. Over time, as technology came along, uh, we started teaching people right, how to do this virtually. The pandemic hits, and that's all we're doing, right? Because like you, most of our clients are in hybrid meetings where some people may be in the room together, but there's always people dialing in, mostly on Microsoft Teams, And these types of meetings, right, they're just a strange dynamic. And that's what we're working with people to really try to figure out how to be successful when we're sitting in here in these little tiles that we all inhabit now. And so that's how I got here. And that's what we do. Well, thank you, Evan, uh, for the introduction. I appreciate it. What a great story. I'm really looking forward to diving more into this conversation. But first, Evan, I must say you are probably quite pleased with the national championship outcome. Um, yes, although I have to admit, I went to Duke undergrad. I'm a little more partial to Duke. We'll see how we do uh, in, okay. bas- in basketball okay. this year. But I was, I was happy to see Michigan uh, take down the uh, title this year. Got it. Well, Evan, um, I'm really excited to have you on today because I, I do believe your extensive background in transforming organizational cultures and enhancing leadership skills in virtual environments means you have a lot of expertise in navigating the complexities of high stakes virtual decision making. And to your point, that's a real deal uh, in this day and age. And so your insight, especially in the context of private equity, will undoubtedly be valuable for our listeners, um, you know, providing practical strategies and innovative approaches uh, to excel in today's digital workspace. So what a what a fascinating topic we have today. So let's go ahead and dive in. Um, And I think, Evan, I I just have a few questions here that I would like to ask you in terms of just leadership in high stakes virtual meetings in general. You know, you've mentioned you've you've been with Schwartz for what, 30 years, you said? 30 30 years, yeah. Which is pretty cool. But um, yeah, how, how has Schwartz and Associates redefined leadership skills in the context of virtual meetings? Well, the word redefine may be ambitious. I would say in many ways, we've tried to take things back to some fundamentals. And so uh, what we've been doing is just teaching people the simplicity of how to set up high stakes meetings for success. Uh, Mm -hmm. As you know, in a high stakes meeting, most of what, you know, makes it go well is everything you did before you show up. And so there really are, in many ways, five fundamentals that we're working with people on. Uh, The first one is the importance of framing. I don't know, you're in, I think you're in Michigan right now. Uh, I'm in Denver. So the metaphor we like to use 
uh, in a high stakes workshop meeting, or you could apply this to a project or an, you know, task force you're leading. It's the metaphor of a plane flight. Uh, I'm here in Denver. Uh, it takes about 50 seconds from the time they hit the jets to wheels up. That's where most of the plane crashes start in meetings. Right? Once the plane's in the air, if you've done a good job of designing the flight plan, we're going to get to Detroit airspace. The second place we get plane crashes is on landing. So really, I don't think we've redefined things as much as just simplified five things that anyone can do. And that's what we're training them to do. And it starts with being really good at setting meetings up for success. And we can get into some of the other specifics, but it's just more about the fundamentals than redefining leadership per se. So interesting. Uh, and I think we'll certainly uh, dive into that one a little bit more. But can you discuss some specific challenges that leaders face in virtual settings and how your approach addresses these? Yeah, one of the practical challenges is we know everyone knows 95% of communication is nonverbal. Uh, one of the challenges is, is that it's hard to engage people. Right? It's really hard to engage people. So the third of the five fundamentals we're teaching is just showing them how to run some good process structure. Now, everything we do has been around in many ways for, you know, probably since TQM, 30s, 40s, 1930s, 1940s. And so you'd be probably used in your consulting practice, things like storyboarding or affinity diagramming with sticky dot voting, those types of things. And so we're just trying to teach people the art of holding space. I don't know if you're familiar with HIPPO decision-making, the acronym from Agile, highest paid person's opinion. I don't know yeah. if that's... <laughs> yeah, right. I, I mean, yeah. we, we know that it can often be the senior people who have strong opinions, who could frankly be quite intimidating when the most junior people closest to the work, right? Or they could be right, from a diversity inclusion program, people of color, right? Or introverts or people speaking English as a second or third language who have exactly the expertise to help the hippos mm -hmm. make better decisions, but people never say anything. Right? So we're showing people how to engage fully the voices of everyone. So while I wouldn't call this a DEI program because it's not, it is definitely a diversity and inclusion program in the sense that you're learning how to tap those voices of the people who may well know exactly what the hippo or hippos need to know to make a better decision. Yeah, yeah. Well, Evan, I, I'd like to circle back to your answer on number one a little bit and just dive a little deeper and that is, what are the key components of effective facilitation in virtual high-stake meetings? Maybe a little more tactically, what does that look like? And I, I know, Evan, the first thing that came to mind when you said that 95% of communication is nonverbal, one of the things that we try to do here internally with not only Nestle and Associates, but also with our clients, is we encourage the video aspect of teams or whatever the platform may be right i mean how many times do you get on a call and you know people don't show their faces it just turns into an audio call so to the extent that we can we highly recommend and prefer an audio video call so that you can take advantage of these nonverbal cues but that being said what can you add what are some of the key components of effective facilitation and and i know that earlier you know, you'd mentioned the importance of framing and setting up meetings for success, but maybe just drill a little deeper tactically. What does that look like? Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think organizations, you know, especially big ones and, uh, you know, private equity firms, you know, may not be acquiring perhaps a MERG, 
you know, one of the first things I would offer they need to do is do an inventory and just shut down a lot of meetings. There's many meetings that should not be allowed out of the hangar onto the tarmac, so to speak. Uh, but we teach a very simple model. Everything we do, there's no rocket science behind it. It is very much the fundamentals, discipline, and hygiene. But the first model we teach is what we call the POPRA model, which is a simple acronym for purpose, objectives, process, roles, and agreements. Most people they have meetings and they haven't thought about why are we having the meeting and what context do I need to give the group? And they haven't gotten clear on the objectives, right? So the why and the what is everything, because if you're not clear on that, there's participants have their own objectives for your meeting, their own agendas. Now, the yeah. second P in the popper model is process, which is really good collaborative design. Right? And you can't design the flight plan, so to speak, if you're not clear what you're doing. And you can't decide what roles you need people to play, right? Especially from a decision-making standpoint. A lot of what you're doing in setting up the meeting with this popper model and the FIP acronym being the agreements, how we want to interact, ground rules, so to speak. What we're doing in setting up a meeting is contracting for how we're going to decide. And I'd say one of the problems in meetings from a decision-making standpoint is we go into our meetings fuzzy or implicit who the ultimate decision maker is, even if we'd always like to reach consensus, but what are we gonna do if we can't reach consensus? Who's deciding? And when we don't have the container set correctly, we get in the meeting and we're gonna hit a lot more turbulence because people are fuzzy on the why, the what, the how, right? You know, who's gonna do what to whom and in what way we need to interact. And so that's the simplest thing is to have a lot more discipline on the front end of the meeting, and all that needs to be figured out before you show up. Yeah, I like that, Evan, having that discipline on the front end of the meeting, and to your point, you know, understanding going into the meeting, here's my purpose, the objectives, you know, here's my roles, here's our key decision or the agreements that we have to make. But obviously, that's that's a major part of the equation. And we've been in meetings before where they take that deliberate intent on the front end of the meeting to establish those points, but they don't execute against that, right? Next thing you know, you get into a meeting and it goes into a tangent. So I think that establishing that purpose, objectives, process, roles, and agreement is certainly, like you said, that's a place to start on the front end. But then to make sure and have the leadership and the ability to keep it on the rails is another thing, isn't it? Well, without question. And that's the second of the five core things we're teaching people is the art of what real facilitation looks like. Now, if I have yeah. the contract, this popper in place, it's, look, it's a, to get anyone to decide anything is a minor leadership miracle. We're all <laughs> dysfunctional human beings. Yeah. We have egos, right? We have opinions. And so once we have that contract for the meeting, the second thing we got to help people to do is understand what elegant facilitation and collaboration looks like. Now, there's many ways to lead, right? And many definitions of leadership. One of the simplest ones we use is to just think about our leadership on a continuum, where you could run a meeting and often senior people, you know, they have strong opinions and they run the meeting where they are the expertise and they're leading with a lot of their expertise and their opinion, which can suppress conversation. But And they're ultimately deciding for the group and presenting their decision at the group. Now, that's one extreme. Now, the other side of the continuum is even though they have strong opinions, they could remain completely neutral on what the group decides, how we're going to allocate capital next year, right? What the design of the system looks like. 
And they are an expert in collaboration, an expert in process structure, an expert in facilitation, right? That side of the continuum, and that's what we're teaching, pure collaborative leadership, requires the ability to know how to handle senior people. And there is a model, right, for we practice over and over for how to intervene, sometime with the hippos, right? And it could be anyone, right? There's people who are just incredibly skilled at creating confusion, turbulence in the meeting. So the second of the five core things is how to handle challenging people mm-hmm. when you're facilitating. And when we realize we don't have to have all the expertise, right, to help a group, what we have to be as an expert in, in facilitation, it really is, lights go on for people because they start realizing if I have the right experts and I bring the right process and we have the right purpose and objectives, and that's how I get a group to lead because what do we want from our teams? We want the best decision. We want people to buy in so they go implement. And so that's the second thing is how to engage the group when they go on tangents. If we know what the destination is, it becomes very easy to keep coming back to that contract because groups are going to lose sight of that from the beginning. But if it's not explicit from the get go, you know, they're just going to bounce all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Evan, you know, clearly it starts with a, a model and then you need to have the execution and the, the uh, maybe the discipline execution to execute against that model. But then what about measurement? How do you measure the success of leadership development in these virtual environments? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And we're a very tiny firm. And, and to be honest, we rely on our clients learning and development function to measure the effectiveness of the program. Now, mm-hmm. I would say at a practical level in the meeting, right, you had objectives to decide something, right, to design a new strategy, to decide what is in and out of the budget next year. So the way we would measure the meeting effectiveness is did we achieve the objectives themselves? From a leadership development standpoint, you know, that is a much bigger issue. Now, if you really wanted to, and we would offer, if you want to intervene in a culture, it starts at the meeting level. Right. Because we're going to have so many of them. And, you know, so if we want to really do this right, you start launching initiatives based on the strategy and you teach the people who are running those strategic initiatives this art of facilitation. So it's connected up with what they're trying to do in the business. Now, the honest truth is I run a lot of trainings per se and people come for these specific skills. And it can be, like any training, a little disconnected. It is hard to measure the actual effectiveness on the organization itself. So I don't have a good answer for specific metrics. Got it. Well, Evan, I I would like to drill a little deeper here in the idea of enhancing collaborative decision-making in virtual teams. So I have uh, two or three questions here along the lines of decision-making specifically. Um, In your experience, what are the critical elements for fostering collaborative decision-making in virtual teams? What's that look well, like? Well, I mean, one of the most important, uh, if you will, critical elements is to make sure we're hearing from everyone. Now, when I say everyone, we over-invite people, right? There's mm-hmm. too many people there, right? And that is a cultural issue. So if we're really clear why we're doing something, what we're doing, we then need to think very practically about who should be there and what roles we really need them to play. So people over invite. But if we're going to get the right experts together, the next challenge we have is how do we hold space so we're hearing from everyone? 
So that's one of the critical elements for collaboration. And it, in a virtual setting, it is hard to get people to engage. It is really hard, especially if there's mixed hierarchy. And people are always going to be, you know, the political dynamics are always going to be there. Uh, just as for your listener, a very simple tool in a virtual environment. And it sounds, you know, obvious. One of the neat things about working virtually is you have the chat function. And often what we do with the group to make sure we hear from everyone is simply pose a question, give people time to respond in the chat without entering their thoughts initially, that is submitting them to the group. So they get a chance to type them into the chat. Mm -hmm. Then we have everyone submit simultaneously. What this does is hold space for all voices, creates tension, so the people who are less likely to talk not only have space and they have to talk, and it allows in this just simple way to make sure every single person is heard, because often, it, as we said earlier, are those junior people, right, who have the expertise to help the group make the better decision, but they never get to voice it. So the chat is really, in many ways, something that can allow you to ensure everyone's talking. Uh, and that's just a very simple thing. And a critical element is to make sure everyone gets to weigh in. Because if people don't weigh in, I think Patrick Lencioni said it, they aren't going to buy in. Yeah. Great uh, point, Seven. I really appreciate it. And you mentioned this idea of, of everyone needs to buy in or everybody needs to be able to participate, right? Or, or as you had mentioned, hold space, right? I love that term. I love that word. You need to hold space for everybody. And, and earlier, you were sharing with our listeners the idea of setting up the agenda, right? The discipline when you go into a meeting to do it deliberately and with intent. And by thinking about the purpose, the objectives, the process, roles, agreement, you know, decisions that have to be made. But that doesn't just come overnight, right? I mean, that usually that is something that it's not just an awareness team for perhaps, you know, organizational leadership or management, but it's something that also takes intent. That training and that practicing of becoming more effective is a deliberate thing that you need to work on. So how does Schwartz and Associates training methods ensure effective agenda design and prevent the common pitfalls in, in virtual meetings? Well, we run an intensive program, right? And uh, it is a four-day intensive with 12 people, two instructors, and it's run on two consecutive days and two consecutive weeks. Now, senior people are not going to take that much time, right? They're busy, even though I'd invite them to consider the fact they're the ones showing what mediocre meetings look like, which then creates the culture of the organization. But I always invite senior people to come watch the fourth day. Because four-day program, two hours of lecture. No one's interested in lecture. The program itself is all practice. And, you know, sometimes a senior person will come observe for a few hours and say, I love this. All my people doing agile, all my people doing continuous improvement, lean six sigma type stuff, all my people doing internal transformation and change need these skills. Because these are change skills, right? They're not meeting skills. And what they'll say to me, Evan, I love this, but I can't take my people offline for four days. What I want from you is 10 videos. I'll give you all the hours, you know, two, 10, two hour videos that my people can watch on their computer, self-paced learning like a master class. And I always say to them, I'm not interested. They'll find someone else going to waste your time and money because if people don't practice, there's no skill transfer. And I'll say to them, did you have kids who learn to drive? And they'll say, yeah, of course. And I'll say, would you have ever let your kids watch 10 videos on how to drive and hand them the car keys or 10 videos on how to swim 
and push them in the deep end. You would never do this, but in this day and age, right, people want a quick fix. We do not learn by watching or listening things. We have to get our hands dirty. And the vast majority of our program is putting people on the, on the spot, on the hot seat, requiring they practice, right, giving them intensive feedback and coaching. And they'll get videotaped because, as you said earlier, we can learn a lot just watching ourselves on video because we see exactly what a group is experiencing in our leadership. And so what really we believe in, in many ways, is just an old school action learning where we get people doing things, give them intensive coaching and feedback. And that's how we get skill transfer. And so four days sounds like a lot to people. And the math for senior people, man, it's daunting. Uh, most senior people are going to spend 50 percent of their time in meetings because the more senior we are, the more you know major decisions are being made and they have to be politically socialized and they're going to take a form of a meeting. But if you're spending 50 percent of your time in meeting, you will literally, if you're only working eight hour days, spend a year's worth of your life in meetings in under nine years. And if you have a 30, 40 year career, you may spend four or five years of your life in meetings. They have to go well because that's where the culture of an organization starts because we're going to spend so much time in meetings. And so. Yeah. Uh, that's really what we're trying to do is real practice, real skill transfer, and it takes time and it takes being worked. Yeah. And, and Evan, I actually want to ask you two or three questions regarding uh, culture, as you'd mentioned, as uh, that's where culture starts, right, is in these meetings. But before we go there, what advice do you have for PE firms looking to enhance collaborative skills in their portfolio companies? Well, I mean, the reality is, and we all know the CEO sets the culture of the organization. And so what I would invite PE firms to think about is perhaps we may not get the C team to do something like this, right? They can't take the time, but anyone in change agent roles, right? If they're big enough to be doing agile for software development, or they're trying to run some continuous improvement process, lean, Six Sigma, that type of stuff, or they have an internal change group, those people become really the change agents for the organization. So one of the things you'd want to have is a cadre of leaders who are really good at, at facilitating high stakes meeting, who have this skill set. A leader themselves, it would be great if they had this skill set because many leaders are trained to be subject matter experts, right? They bring expertise. They're used to making decisions for the group. The real art, though, and that is what we're teaching in many ways is a lost art is can you get a group of people to come together, even if you have strong opinions, make a decision, a good decision, a great decision, get them to buy in. And that requires in that going back to that continuum to be able to be more neutral and certainly not impose your will on the group and certainly maybe wait before you offer your expertise. Right. So that people can step up. But to your question, I think you have to have a cadre of change agents who are good at facilitating collaboration and they become role models for the culture of the organization. So, Evan, you mentioned, you know, CEOs or CXOs, rather, they often can't take the time to participate in this type of exercise or training. What do you see? What is the trigger point or maybe the pain point for organizations that inspire them to reach out Schwartz and Associates to begin with? I mean, at what point, you know, it starts with awareness, right? So somebody in that CXO team realizes, hey, look, we just are not doing a good job. Maybe our culture is not where it needs to be. We're running bad meetings. So they clearly recognize a need for that improvement. 
Is that what it is? Is that what drives them to reach out to Evan and say, hey, come on in and help us out? Where's that wake up call? Well, I mean, the reality, as I've said in the beginning, earlier in my career, I was doing cultural transformation consulting. Now, I'm a middle-aged white guy turned 60 and, uh, next Monday. And so as I've like gotten older, <laughs> thank you. We're not quite there yet. I'm not sure it's going to be a happy one hitting 60. But, <laughs> you know, as I've gone later in my career, I've shut down consulting. And I just love the practice of teaching people how to do this for themselves. Uh, but the wake up call, I've asked clients uh, for 30 years, two questions. The first one is how many meetings does your organization have in a day? And of course, that's depending on the size of the organization. But a large company with 100,000 people, when you think of the one on ones, they may have a half a million meetings in a day. Uh, and yeah. so the second question I've asked them is what's the average effectiveness of the meetings you attend? And zero to 100 percent. I've had two clients in 30 years, say 80 percent. Right. I have a handful, not over two hands, say 70 percent. What I generally get is 50 percent or lower. Mm. And I just sit here with clients and say, this is insane. Right. You're going to spend half, you know, years of your life in meetings. How can you tolerate this being 50, 40, 30 percent effective? And the reality is that people don't hate meetings. Right. What they hate is wasting time. And so many meetings are a waste of time. And if I'm the one running all these mediocre meetings and wasting people time, that is where my leadership reputation is being established. And so the pain point often is people sitting in these miserable meetings, which literally drains the productivity out of the organization, the life force out of the organization. Now, again, organizations need to figure out how to reduce the number of meetings. I'm not in that business. I'm in the business of showing them what great collaboration looks like in meetings that need to happen, right? Workshop type meetings, planning meetings, strategy meetings, process redesign meetings. But the pain point is just the fact that we're in all these miserable meetings. And at some point someone says, this is crazy. This is where the culture of the organization is being established. If we can intervene at the meeting level, right? And increase the performance just of the meeting themselves, we then start transforming the culture of performance of the organization. And so, you know, the pain point is simply the misery of sitting in meetings. So, um, Evan, you'd, you'd mentioned the culture is being established within these meetings a couple of times in our conversation. So tell our listeners more. How does the collaborative leadership, the virtual immersion program specifically impact organizational culture? Well, when we've done this as a broader cultural intervention, the truth is we've started with the C team and trained them with these skills, right? Because they are the role models for what collaboration looks like uh, broader in the organization. Everything rolls downhill. And then we'll begin training the next level and the skip level down. If you build a cadre of people who are good at collaborative leadership, good at knowing the real art is to get the right experts together, right? You are really good at getting them from a process standpoint to engage, and you are very good at being clear why you're having the meeting, what you're trying to get done. If we change that dynamic, right, it completely transforms the culture of the organization because people are not wasting time and they're used to, you know, coming into meetings It's meaningful. It's purposeful. We get it done and we end up having less of them. So 
just because we spend so much time in meetings, if we can change even just a little bit the culture of meetings, we will change the culture of the organization. Yeah. And and I think having a part of that couple of items that really contribute to a positive organizational culture is that idea you'd mentioned before with allowing space, right? Uh, that, yeah. that two-way dialogue and creating empathy, uh, which is part of that is listening to people. And I think all too often, I, I totally agree that you get into these meetings and it becomes basically a monologue or a dissertation or a lecture yeah. uh, at times. And, you know, you don't accomplish that mission. You're really not allowing that to a dialogue to talk about the purpose, objectives, process, you know, agreements, consensus and so forth. And I think that's a, a major negative contribution to organizational culture. But what can you elaborate on in terms of the concept of virtual skill transfer and it's significant in today's digital workplace. Can you share with our listeners what do you mean by that exactly? Well, virtual skill transfer? Well, I mean, what I mean is, look, we're transferring the skills to work in a virtual environment. Mm-hmm. Everything we've done for decades, of course, we were teaching people how to work in a room together. Those days have changed, right? You're not going to get everybody back in the office, although I imagine a lot of CEOs would like to, because I imagine we're, they're all struggling with how to recreate a culture of commitment when, you know, I never ever perhaps have seen this person face to face. But by virtual skill transfer, what we mean is, you're going to run these virtual meetings, you better be good at it. And so what we're trying to do is give them real skill around running the virtual collaboration. Now, the, we used to run programs, as I said, face-to-face, and we still have a couple clients who like to run the old version, right, where we're teaching them how to run the same set of skills of collaboration sitting in a room together. But the reality is all their meetings are still hybrid. The reason they want to run it face-to-face is for culture building, team building purposes. But really all virtual skill transfer means is one, teaching, transferring how to run high stakes facilitated meetings and do it in the context of running it over our laptops or desktop computers. And so it's just a matter of teaching people the art of facilitation in a setting where people are remote. Yeah. So Evan, you know, we've talked throughout this conversation today, this idea about the model of, you know, effective virtual communication, the execution of that model. And then we talked a little bit about measurement, but what role does in-depth feedback play in your training programs and how does that contribute to long-term cultural change? I mean, obviously, I assume that that's a pretty significant mechanism in your program. Oh, it's it's the bulk of the program, right? People have to practice and get feedback. And this applies culturally from a continuous improvement in meetings. We want to build in feedback loops, right? So one of the five core things is landing the plane. People do a really bad job of landing the plane. So they could have facilitated a great meeting. But what often the trap we get into is we instead as we're running out of time, instead of landing the plane, we actually keep going. Right. The metaphor, again, with the plane flight is when we're running out of fuel, we don't say to the pilot, fly faster. What we say is we better find a field to land in. And it's the same principle in a meeting. The last, you know, five percent of a meeting, right, it's about t- uh, uh, landing. Now, to get back to feedback, part of the landing, right, is one, making sure you achieve the objectives. And if you didn't get everything done, what are you going to do next? Uh, and then 
making sure every single person drops off that call crystal clear who's going to do what by when. So there's not any wasted time. They know immediately what who needs to do what by when, and you as the leader can hold them accountable. The last thing we want to do is build in after action reviews at the meeting level, right? Plus Delta, well done, take a look at. Because feedback, you know, is the mechanism by which any organization gets better. Now, we always encourage our participants when they leave the program to ask for feedback on how they ran the meeting, because that's how we get better at anything. So in the program, it's about feedback, but we also want people to go run their meetings where they build feedback loops into them so they get better and better over time. Mm -hmm. So that said, Evan, um, for a PE firm considering your program, what are the key takeaways for their portfolio companies in terms of performance and productivity enhancement? Well, I mean, suppose the key takeaways is they're going to have a lot of meetings, right? They're moving fast. We better make these meetings good. And so really, you know, coming back to what we've been talking about, I think it's just the realization that the culture of how they run their meetings is going to shape the culture of performance of the organization. And so PE firms need to think about the fact that their leaders are the ones who are modeling the culture for the organization. And if you want them to create a collaborative culture, they need the skills to know how to engage a group. And that's really what I think a lot of PE firms probably need to think about is the performance of the organization. And we all know a big part of that is cultural. Yeah. And I imagine PE firms are trying to figure out how to change the culture of the organization that they have acquired or purchased. And again, it starts at change the way we run high stakes meetings. Well, Evan, fun conversation. I have one more question for you, Evan. And as we wrap up this incredibly insightful conversation and a super cool and relevant topic, uh, for sure, I'd like to ask you for your golden nugget. Given that all we've discussed today, could you briefly summarize the key takeaways our listeners should remember? And based on these insights, what is the single most valuable piece of advice you would offer to our listeners as they navigate their own journeys in virtual leadership within a private equity space? What's that golden nugget you can leave for our listeners? Well, let's start with just the, the summary of, of really what the five fundamentals are. One, this popper model framing, right? Two, the art of facilitation, how to engage a group, how to handle challenging people. Three, how do we hold space? And there are tools and techniques to do that, which we're covering. Four, being very good at landing the plane. And five, knowing most of a high stakes meeting is what happens before you show up. And so we're teaching people how to design. And I would say the golden nugget for PE firms is simply look at the meetings you have, right? Really look and ask yourself, is this really necessary? And if the answer is to no, figure out how to get less meetings, but run better meetings. And that really would be what I'd be worried about is in, in a company is can we get the meetings that need to run to run better sure. and ultimately impact the culture? Well, as promised, that wraps up another insightful episode. Today, we've explored the critical elements of virtual leadership within the private equity sector, thanks to our guest, Evan Unger. From understanding the nuances of leading high-stakes virtual meetings to enhancing collaborative design making and driving organizational change, today's conversation has been packed with valuable insights. So thank you very much, Evan, for that. We appreciate it. 
I encourage all of our listeners to apply these strategies and concepts in your own ventures. Remember, the key takeaways from today's discussion can truly help you move the needle forward in your leadership journey and organizational growth. Whether it's rethinking your approach to virtual meetings or integrating innovative training methods, there's a wealth of knowledge here to leverage your success. Thank you so much today, uh, Evan, for your time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your dedication to your trade. Uh, but before we let you go, uh, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you? Sure. The easiest way is just to go to LinkedIn. Uh, there are not too many Evan Ungers. If you add Schwartz and Associates, uh, you'll pull, <laughs> pull me up. You can access our website there. And we always invite you know organizations who are curious about this to send us really someone who's hard-nosed, who knows the pragmatics of leading. And we're glad to always discount an initial seat just to get them to try it. And if they're curious, they can, on our website, you know, grab my calendar uh, if they think this is something of interest to them. We'd love to have them. And I appreciate, Jackie, giving me a little time here. Thank you. Oh, likewise. We really appreciate it, Evan. And for our listeners, we will have Evan's contact information as well in our podcast page. Uh, Evan, thank you again so much. I I really appreciate your time. Uh, Be well, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Jack. You bet. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to, and we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review. A great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click Ratings and Reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the podcast option. Please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERPOCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.